Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. As the ushers are collecting today's offering, I want to introduce you to uh, Owen Gathanga, who is our guest today on this week. Let's give Owen a, a welcome, a Center Street welcome. You get to, that's right. Well, welcome to Calgary, Owen. We're, we're glad that you're here with us this weekend. Um, Owen, would you share a little bit about your background, where you're from, and a bit of your story with, uh, with our Center Street folks today? Okay. So I think I had a weird dream as a kid because it's weird. Uh, I don't think very many kids dream about becoming an accountant. And, uh, Being an accountant? Yeah. Okay. So I always wanted to become an accountant ever since I was a kid, but soon enough I realized that that would never happen. And it would never happen because of who I was and where I came from. I came from a family of three boys and my mom, whose source of income was about 5 to $10 a month. And I mean, that, that's what you would call abject poverty. Life was really hard. It was a struggle. I remember going to bed sometimes for uh, weeks without having food to eat, and I had to go find food elsewhere. And that meant going and knocking on people's doors and begging for food. And Growing up in poverty was bad, but the absolute worst thing about poverty is the hopelessness that came from poverty. As people looked at me straight in their eyes and, and I told them I wanted to become an accountant, and they told me, don't waste your time dreaming because none of your dreams will ever come true. And I mean, I wanted to believe otherwise. I wanted to believe that I'm going to become an accountant. But these people told me, you're poor, you're worthless, you're hopeless, and you will never become an accountant. Wow. So you grew up in Kenya? And, and can, you, can you share a little bit how your life was different because you were registered in the Compassion Program and, and maybe uh, share a little bit about the relationship with your sponsors? So I was, I was eight years old when I was first sponsored through Compassion and the way Compassion works is it works, it works through the local church. And so when my mom took me there, we were poor enough that Compassion sponsored me. And, and I remember it was there that I met these teachers who were hired by Compassion and they were very warm and loving towards me. It was the first time anyone ever expressed warmth towards me. And, and on the other side was my sponsor, who he was my superhero growing up, because I couldn't understand for the longest time what did he see in me. I mean, I grew up feeling so unloved, and then comes this guy who uh, lived thousands of miles away from me, and I remember one of the first letters that he wrote to me. He told me three words that no one had ever said to me before. He said, I love you. The first time anyone ever shared those words were in a letter. But the best thing about compassion is I got the opportunity to get the best gift any man would ever receive. I got the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. And I mean, if compassion, the only thing they did was give me Jesus and walk away, I would have been just fine. But compassion didn't stop there. They, they guaranteed me food and clean water it took me to school. I was the first person in my family to go past high school. Really? And I went on, graduated college, did my master's degree, sat for my CPA license in America, and today I am what so many people told me I would never become. I am an accountant. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. And... Something special happened to me. About five years ago, I got married to the 
most beautiful woman in the whole white world. And that was awesome. But I also had something special happen. This guy, I mean, he decided to take a chance in my life and invest in me. And I had the privilege of having him stand beside me on my biggest day. And my sponsor, who sponsored me through Compassion, was the best man in our wedding. And I don't wow. know if... Yeah. Wow. And Amazing. Where did you meet your wife? I met my wife in Kenya. In Kenya? Yeah. Through a compassion mission trip. Wow. So compassion is a big part of your of life. Of my life, yeah. It's, wow. It's the full circle. It's the full circle. Yeah. And I mean, to just say it out there, I was sponsored through compassion for close to 20 years. And I mean, I was, the first time I was sponsored, my sponsor decided to sponsor me. He saw my picture on one of these packets and decided to sponsor this kid. And I mean, that was about more than 20 years ago. Wow. And 20 years later, look what the Lord has done. And I just want to say this because me and my wife, we sponsor four kids through compassion. And I can tell you because I've had the experience of being sponsored, and now that I sponsor these four kids, and I love it, it is way more blessed to be a sponsor than to be a sponsor child. And it, it is so important when that sponsor comes in, in the life of this kid, and you tell them they matter. You tell them God has a greater purpose in their lives more than what their current situation is. Wow. So, Owen, I mean, it's interesting because we are moving forward with our Compassion Projects in Mexico as we work with our partner churches and these new churches. There's some folks that, that would be a little skeptical about this or have different thought processes. How would you respond to that? I mean, we've heard your testimony, but this really does make a difference practically and in eternity. It does. I mean, I can tell you this. I would vouch my life for Compassion because I was sponsored through Compassion and they changed my life, it works. I have been released from poverty in Jesus' name, and one of the reasons why I decided to go back and sponsor is because it works. It works because I had the opportunity to receive a gift so beautiful. I think every man should receive the gift of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to just say to you guys, I mean, you, you'll walk out there and you'll see pictures of these kids and... It's really important what compassion does, not only to me as a kid, mm -hmm. but to the church because it works through local churches. And so many of those churches, if it wasn't for compassion investing in them, would be closed. I have done a lot of mission trips, uh, mission work in Kenya, and I can tell you sometimes we go to places that Christians normally don't step into, but because there is a church in that community, it opens the door for us to go in and talk to people about Jesus. So the local church is a real key part of this. Yeah. Wow. Owen, thanks for coming today yeah. and being able to spend some time with us. Well, I hope you enjoy your couple of days here in Calgary yeah. and I appreciate you much. Let's give Warren, uh, Owen a, a warm thank you. Thank thanks, you. buddy. Uh, I'll see you backstage. Thank you. Appreciate it. Wow. The best man at his wedding. Friends, the definition of compassion is feeling or showing concern for someone who is sick, hurt, or poor. In the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, we see that the Samaritan came upon an injured man and felt compassion. Jesus in Matthew 9 
Seeing the people, he, had, he too had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we read in Psalm 103 that he who redeems your life from the pit crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Friends, uh, we've been wrestling with and praying through this for, for a few years now. What is Center Street Church's responsibility? What is global ministry's responsibility in compassion? We have both a local focus and an international focus. And we don't want to just talk about being a compassionate people. We want to be compassionate people. We want to help meet the needs, seen and unneeds, seen and unseen needs here in our community, as well as work with the, with the local church uh, around the world. So we've come to understand that our greatest resource is not just money. It's, it's, it's our people. It's you. It's the local compassion that we do, that we're helping people with financial support and food cards and bus tickets and more. And, and we've even seen people find jobs, find hope, and find Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. To this end, we feel that God's leading us as a church to continue to have a, a, a greater focus of compassion here in our own community and be the generous church. In the next few weeks, we are going to be starting some new initiatives here, working with existing partners and new partners as we look towards a holistic approach in the physical, social, emotional, and spiritual needs of those who are walking in our campus on a regular basis. Our children at Central Campus uh, here have joined with this movement and launching this month their contribution to our Compassionate Ministries called Take a Bite Out of Hunger where they're going to collect food supplies for the food bank and even help out those needs of those folks that walk in to this campus on a regular basis looking for help. As a, as a result to our approach to, to our global compassion, which you're hearing today, it became clear that we needed to start through the local church. And so where we already serve. So we are choosing this starting point with compassion in Mexico. See, over two years ago, we started talking to Vela, and Gallo Vasquez, who oversees our 17 partner churches in Mexico City. And they looked at this Compassion Project as well and really have fully embraced it because they are reaching, Compassion is reaching through the local church children that our partner churches are not doing in the same way. We're gonna be adding seven new partner churches in Mexico through this new Compassion Initiative. And they are going to reach children with the gospel. That is what we as a church, our DNA is, about introducing people to Jesus, helping them become fully devoted followers through the local church. Together, folks, as a church family, we would ask you to prayerfully step out with us in faith as we are moved by compassion towards action. It's clear to us he's, he's calling us to be this compassionate, generous church starting at home and then working around the world. Our help is a small part in God's plan. We know that he provides everything and that we will lean into him and depend on him in this next season. And we would ask that you would pray with us to that end. Now we're gonna hear a little bit more about how we can be moved into compassion and possibly towards those children in Mexico uh, to, that need to be introduced to Jesus. I'd like to introduce to you now and ask you to give a big, warm Center Street welcome to, our, to the president and CEO of Compassion Canada, our keynote speaker this weekend, Dr. Barry Sloan-White. Praise, Praise God. Thank you. Good morning, Center Street Church. Wow. 
three of you are awake. That's good. I don't feel so bad then. I'm trying to get over a long trip back from Brazil, and Air Canada was kind enough to let me have a little seat halfway back the plane on an overnight flight, and they were kind enough to put the two screaming babies in the same row. So uh, I guess they know I love children. <laughs> I travel way too much, and I figured this out. I still love children, but I really love children that well-behaved. <laughs> it's so good to be with you today. We, as Wayne said, we have been praying for this day. We've been dreaming of this day for a long time. Because this day is going to mark a move forward of something great that God is already doing, but he's going to do more of. I was moved by Owen's testimony. I was backstage with tears down my eyes because I know right where he lived. I know that area of Nairobi. I've been there many times. And if you'd, you'd introduce me to Owen on the street there 20 years ago, I would have probably bet my new iPad that he couldn't be where he is today. Except, except for one ingredient, and that's the ingredient I want to talk to you about today. That ingredient is the life-changing, eternal-changing power of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me and let's invite him into our hearts and minds. Father, we stand today in your holy presence. Give us ears to hear. Let our hearts be open to you. Let our minds be free of distraction. You didn't just allow us to be here this morning to fill time. You have a strategic plan for us today. And we need to give you our undivided attention in order for you to speak to us. So we ask that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I want to talk to you today about a subject that is not very popular. It's one I've been talking about for 33 years, and I haven't met many audiences that give standing ovations over that subject. The subject is poverty, but I hope to take you on a journey today that will help you to look at poverty in a different way. Our worldview is how we see the world. Everybody has a worldview. I meet people all over the planet with variety of worldviews. Some people think that everybody in Canada is wealthy. Some people think that everybody in Uganda is poor. Some people think that God only loves certain color or class of people. Other people think that God, that people are destitute and people are poor because they're lazy or they have too many kids or whatever. There's many views of our world. We call that a worldview. And your worldview and my worldview colors the way we see things, the way we look at the news, the way we read papers, what we see when we travel. It's like putting on a pair of sunglasses 
with colored lenses. I like to do this with my grandchildren. We go to the dollar store, we buy some cheap sunglasses, and we have a pile of fun looking at everything. And when you put the red glasses on, it's red. When you put the yellow glasses on, it's yellow. It's a lot of fun. So I'm going to invite you to take a fresh look at Scripture with me this morning. And I'm going to invite you to be open. Be open. Even if you know the Bible inside out, even if you've got degrees in theology, I'm going to invite you to be open to adjust, maybe even change your worldview about two things, poverty and children. I want to take you to a scripture. It's found in the New Testament book of Luke. It's in chapter 4. I won't read the entire chapter, but I invite you to because the context here is important. But after Jesus' uh, temptation, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth, as he often did. And when he went into the synagogue, they passed him a scroll. A scroll is something like this, just a little different format. It might, you might have the Bible on your iPhone. Jesus' iPhone rolled out, right? And he even had text. You'll get it. <clears throat> so they passed him this scroll, and he opened it up, and he opened it to the book of Isaiah. And he read these words, found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I want to ask you a question today. When Jesus said that today this scripture is fulfilled, and when he said he was anointed to bring the good news to the poor. What do you think that good news was? Do you think that good news was foreign aid? Do you think it was sustainable development, increased family income, food, clothing, maybe a new home, education for your children, health care? Don't get me wrong. All of these things are important and they are necessary. I, I had the, the unfortunate opportunity to be in the wrong place at the wrong time a few years ago, downtown Port-au-Prince, Haiti, when the earthquake struck. I survived, thank God, but in the weeks, months, and years to follow, was very, very involved, many trips back to Haiti. In those early days after the earthquake, we, Compassion, we gave out food, we gave out water, we brought in medical teams, we did everything humanly possible to help. Because in that situation, that's exactly what was needed. But that is not what our strategy long term is. Because as you heard Owen say, all the things he received from compassion, the school fees, the school uniform, the meals, the health care, the inoculations, all of those things were not as important as the one gift, and that gift 
was the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all of those things being good, none of them will change the eternal destiny of one single human being. So do you think that is what Jesus had in mind when he read the scripture from Isaiah? Jesus fed multitudes. Jesus healed the sick. He educated. He spent lots of times teaching. He gave water and food. But that is not the reason Jesus came to earth. The Bible tells us clearly that he came to earth to bring the news, the good news of the gospel. He did all of those acts of kindness. Why? Because he loved the people that he was bringing the gospel to. I am a strong believer that we have no right to bring the gospel to people if we don't take time to love them. That is an imperative. You look at the life of Jesus. He loved people, but he didn't come to earth to feed people or to educate them or to turn water into wine or whatever. He came to bring the good news of the gospel. All of these acts of kindness that Jesus did was simply because he loved them. These acts of kindness were not his strategy. His strategy was the good news of the gospel. To help us change the lenses in our glasses, in our worldview, and get a scriptural worldview on poverty, I want to take you right back to the very beginning of the Bible. So keep your finger in Luke, and then take a left turn and go way, way back to the very first page. Well, not the first page, because that's the, the list of the books, but might be the fourth or fifth page in your Bible. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to take a fresh look at what happened during the creation process. And especially this thing we call the fall of man, the original sin. And I want us to read the fine print. Look at the details of the consequences of this one act of sin on all humanity that followed. So in Genesis chapter 1, just let me take you on a quick ride. Hold on. In Genesis chapter 1, we find that God created the world, and it was good. The concept of poverty did not exist. There was no word in Adam and Eve's vocabulary for want or without. They had everything they needed just like one of those little kids in my row had everything he needed, but he still wasn't happy, and he still cried those artificial tears. But then came the fall. You remember when Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit, and sin entered into the picture of humanity. And sin, the Bible tells us, destroyed Adam and Eve's relationship with God and horizontally with each other. That wasn't the end, because that one act, as we teach our children, every action has a consequence. You touch the hot barbecue, you start screaming because you get burned. Every action has a consequence. You might feel you need to take that cell phone and text 
somebody while you're driving, there'll be a consequence. And so it was. With that act of eating the forbidden fruit, there were huge consequences. We come to know that as the curse. The curse, in fact, relates to every single area of life and humanity. The curse affects childbirth. Every one of you moms here, you know what you thought of Adam and Eve when you were in labor. The curse affects relationships. People have a hard time getting along. It affects work. Adam had to actually get off of his tree stump or whatever and start digging and breaking out in sweat. It affects economic hardships. You see, before the fall of man, there was no way for poverty to exist. But after that first sin, poverty became the default setting of the entire world. And we have both physical and spiritual poverty to blame for that one act. Most of us know the story quite well to this point. But let me challenge you to consider the far-reaching implications of this fall of man. You see, poverty didn't just happen, and everybody kind of throw up their arms and say, well, I guess that's the new normal. Poverty became a very strategic tool in Satan's hands. Creation, you may not have thought of it, but creation had an audience. Satan and the rebellious angels were part of that audience. And remember, at this point in time, Satan was a sworn enemy against God. He was ticked off like on steroids. He was so, he had such a bitter hatred against God. He and his third of the angels. They rebelled. They tried to overthrow and God dealt with them. But we don't stop to think that as the creation process was happening, there were eyes watching this process. And during creation, Satan saw God's weakness. He saw that God loved one part of creation more deeply than any other part of creation. And that piece of creation that really came close to God's heart wasn't the animals, wasn't the birds or the trees. It was man, Adam and Eve. Because the Bible tells us when God made Adam and Eve, he changed the formula. He used a different formula. He made them unlike any other part of creation in his own image. And when he looked at them, it was kind of like looking in the mirror and he fell in love. Remember the first time you saw your child in the hospital? I can't remember back that far, so I have to go to my grandchildren. You, you, look, at, you look at that life a couple minutes or hours old. And what are you looking for? Resemblances, right? And you're just praying they look like you and not your wife. In my case, my wife's far more better looking, and thank God they look more like her. God looked at Adam and Eve, and he could see a reflection of himself. And Satan figured something out very quickly. The way to hurt God, remember, God's his enemy. The way to hurt God is to hurt 
his creation. He also discovered that the earlier he can do that, the more effective. Satan declared war on children. In the womb, he begins. Where is the most dangerous place in the world for a child? What does research tell us? Sadly, in this day, with all that we have available to us, the most dangerous place for a human being on this earth is in their mother's womb. Do you think abortion is just a coincidence, just a sign of our times? Not to think so. It is one of Satan's favorite tools to destroy God's most loved creation. If you happen to survive, which only about half of the people of the world do, if you survive abortion, he brings out another tool, child abuse and neglect. And friends, that happens in every society of our world. Don't kid yourself. It's happening on your street. I was in Honduras just about two weeks ago, and there I met a 14-year-old little girl whose father raped her, and she was impregnated. And as I was asked to pray for that little girl holding this sickly baby, and the baby was, was deformed, the baby was very ill, I discovered, I found out that to hide her pregnancy, she put a big wide belt around her to try and make it look like she wasn't gaining weight. That had really severe consequences on that little baby that was inside of her. She is now thankfully in one of our Compassion CSP programs for child survival for mothers and children. But here's the thing that broke my heart. As I began to pray, I heard myself praying like I normally would, talking to God, our Father. And it was just like a bolt of lightning hit me. I can't pray like that. I can't use the word Father because that brings in her mind fear and attack and abuse. And do you think it's coincidental that Satan uses child abuse? Because most children are abused by adults most of them by men, and guess what we pray to? God, our Heavenly Father. That act of child abuse is a tool in Satan's hands to keep children and young people from trusting in God and believing that God loves them. Poverty is one of Satan's main tools. The war on poverty is a spiritual war. It's not a humanitarian war, which we are led to believe. And we are never going to win this war with money or foreign aid or good deeds. Poverty, and you heard our brother over here say it, poverty brings a damaging message. It tells children and young people, you don't matter. 
You will fail. You'll never become an accountant. Why are you being so foolish to even daydream like that? You will be poor just like your father and his father and their father. Your life will be a failure just like your family. Poverty breeds fatalism and apathy, and it's those two ingredients that keep millions of children from ever believing that God is a God of love. It is a spiritual war, poverty. And Satan says, if I control the children, I control the war. George Barna, the great renowned researcher, says this, theological knowledge is developed in children by age 14. What you believe, what your children, what your grandchildren believe by age 14, they will die believing unless of some miraculous, catastrophic interception in their lives. Think of it. Think of how we treat children, how often we babysit them until they get 14, until they're old enough maybe to participate in church. And we've missed those formative years. We've missed the most important years of a child's life. Ministry to children is actually the front lines of this war. If you are a parent, if you are a grandparent, if you are a Sunday school teacher or a children's worker, you are the greatest hero because you are working on the front lines if you're taking your role seriously. Ministry to children is the most important ministry you could do because it has the greatest impact. Satan's goal is to recruit and neutralize the emerging generation of spiritual warriors. And children are the ultimate reward in this spiritual war. There is no greater mission field than the hearts of your children, my children, and the children in Africa, Asia, Latin America, or wherever. No greater mission field. The enemy sees each child with a target on their heart. And spiritual warfare is not about seeing the devil behind every tree. Spiritual warfare is actually a tool of the enemy to destroy the emerging generations. We as a church we as families, we cannot ignore this. We must be more strategic in ministry to children. So many of us in Canada especially, we spend way more time investing in our children in hockey or soccer or whatever kind of sports or music than we do in the things of God. Parents, grandparents, can I beg you, can I implore you, understand what's happening in the lives of your children and your grandchildren. This is no time to be passive. This is the most important and strategic time of life. And you grandparents, you're not retired yet. As long as you've got grandchildren, you have an obligation under God to be part of bringing them into faith and strengthening their faith. Don't waste time only just sitting, reading books or watching videos or whatever. 
Take time to teach them about God. One of the best things you can do is you can tell them stories. My grandchildren love stories. We sat out on my patio in the summer because in the winter we die. But we sat out on my patio and they will ask me, Papa, tell me another story. And I don't have to make up these stories because I've lived 64 years. And for 59 of those years, I was a Christian. I was a Christ follower. I became a Christian at five years of age. I have many stories. I can tell them of miracles that I've witnessed. I can tell them many things about God. Why would I waste my time telling them Star Wars stories or something fable? I want my stories to count for eternity in the lives of my grandchildren. George Barna says this, in human development there is no more critical period than the first 15 years of life. Poverty is one of Satan's favorite tools and when deployed against children, it is his most effective tool. Poverty isn't his only tool. He has many more. He has a new one. A new one that just invented in the last few years. It's called affluence. It's becoming one of his most effective tools as well. The war against children of which I speak, friends, is a spiritual war. Therefore, our weapons of defense must also be spiritual. Satan is targeting your children and my children. We must not be naive. In Luke's gospel, chapter 4, Jesus is talking about spiritual warfare. He's not talking about food and handouts. He is talking about spiritual things. I have come, he said, to bring a changed heart, to bring the gospel, to bring the good news. If we're going to win this war then, we must be as a church, we must be as parents and grandparents, as mission organizations, as NGOs, we must be strategic. This is no ordinary war. If our enemy is clever enough to target children, we must be equally as clever. We must stop deploying most of our resources when it's too late. Do you know that 80% of every adult Christian in the world today came to Christ as a child. But do you know where some 85 to 90% of all mission dollars go? To adults. Go figure that out. If you use that formula for your business, you'd be bankrupt. We must have a strategy for defending the front lines, our children. Too many Christians are giving too much money to work that has no kingdom impact. I challenge you. I challenge you as families, as individuals, review your giving budget and give to kingdom impact things, not just the things that ease your conscience or that make you feel good. No one ever got into heaven by something feeling good. They only is one way into heaven, and that's through accepting Jesus Christ. Our challenge then is to impact young children while they still hope, while they still dream. Do you know the most loving and strategic intervention that can be done for children anywhere in the world is to bring them through the local church's ministry to their heavenly father. When a child comprehends that God loves them, their self-worth 
sores. You saw that in our testimony. They then take their first step out of poverty. And I like to say it this way. When a child in poverty accepts Jesus Christ, they go from being worthless to priceless in one single step. God has a plan for this war. And I didn't want to bring you here and just tell you all the bad news. God has a plan. That's the exciting part. He has a strategy for winning this war. God's strategy does not involve heavy weapons of mass destruction. It's not about armies and military powers. God's strategy is the local church, the powerful body of believers, willing to serve on the front lines in this spiritual war. The church is God's plan A. Did you know God does not have a backup plan? He'd never do well in the Silicon Valley industry. There's no redundancy there. There's no plan B in God's economy. He has one plan, only one plan, and I've had many parachurch organizations argue with me. I've had many NGOs argue with me. No, friend, only one plan. That is the local church, the powerful body of believers. The church is God's plan A for redeeming the world. That's why compassion as a ministry aligns ourselves exclusively with the local church. Every compassion program, all 7,000 plus of them around the world, every one of them is a partnership with a local church. Every sponsored child in our program is known, loved, and protected by members of their local church, someone from their community. Every child in Compassion's program, 1.7 million today, every one of those children is given an opportunity to know Jesus personally. On any given day of the year, four to 500 of those children accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you take and string that out, that's one child coming to Christ every four minutes. Wow, that's incredible. Let me show you an example of how this works before we close. Friend of mine, Harriet, you'll see her here in the picture. If I could describe to you how destitute Harriet and her family were, it would make you cry, and I'm not here to play on your emotions. But she was so poor, her and her mom and her two younger siblings, that the poor people in her area made fun of them said, they're too poor. When she was eight years old, she dreamed, being the oldest child, of how she could help her mother with the two younger children. The father had abandoned them. The only thing that she was aware of, the only option that she knew of, was when she got 12 years old, she could go to the city and become a prostitute and send money back to her family. Do you think that dream originated out of thin air? This spiritual war on children, do you think she came up with that idea? I think not. I think the enemy planted that in her heart. Just a few months after that dream, a church in her village began running a compassion program because they were so poor, 
her and her siblings were immediately enrolled. Today, meet Harriet Mankumba. She is one of the top human rights lawyers in Uganda. She is an avid Christ follower. She and her classmates in the Compassion Program have won over 900 people to Christ, and she's only 25 years old. That's what I'm talking about. An army of child soldiers piercing the enemy lines with the gospel. That's why it matters to reach these children. D.L. Moody said this in his dying days, if I had my life to live all over again, I would devote it entirely to children. He gets it. He got it. This weekend, we launch a strategic partnership between Center Street Church and Compassion Canada. Why? To get a bunch of kids sponsored? No. To raise money? No. We launched this partnership for one reason. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Verse 18. We launched this partnership to bring the good news of the gospel to children in Mexico and wherever God might lead us. So let's be clear. Theology of poverty is that the root cause of poverty is sin. It has become a sinister tool for Satan, this poverty. Therefore, the answer to poverty is not money, not another car wash, not another fundraiser, not more foreign aid. The answer to poverty is the gospel wrapped with tangible love, not tangible deeds of love with a hint of the gospel. There's a big difference. The world doesn't need more Compassion Canada. The world needs more Jesus Christ. The Great Commission of Matthew 28, 28 does not say to go into all the world and feed the poor. The Great Commission says that we are to go into all the world and tell people about Jesus. The centrality of Christ must permeate our mission and our ministry activity. So with Center Street Church and Compassion Canada, we make a formidable coalition in this war. We are Christ-centered, we are child-focused, and we are church-based. So what can you do on two fronts? Locally, in your families, in your communities, in your church, begin to look at children strategically. And globally, you can become a missionary to a child by sponsoring one of those children out in the foyer today. I pray that God will use you in a way that you had never imagined or dreamed he would. God bless you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.